0: Well, last week we had uh, Pastor Jonathan, who were here with us uh, in James chapter 5, looking at the first six verses, and you might remember it was all about the rich and how the rich oppress the poor and take advantage of them, and I think he did a good job of breaking that down for for us. I think um, in light of that situation, that part of the letter here, Paul, or excuse me, James now is switching from the oppressors to the oppressed. So tonight's passage, we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 12. And in our ESV translation, the the heading here over this paragraph is patience and suffering. So we're going to talk about suffering and patience and kind of how they go together. But we'll also be adding in verse 12, which seems to be tagged on. It's not quite. Decisive whether that's part of this patience and suffering or whether that really belongs with the next passage But that's the part of the verses the verses assigned to me tonight So what I'd like you to do is take just a moment to silently read James 5 7 to 12 uh, And then we will break this apart a few verses at a time as you do especially in those first few verses uh Think about the testimony we just heard from Brother Bob. I think it's a perfect segue to this passage. I don't know if that was Pastor Jim's intention, but I know it was the Holy Spirit's plan. So if you'll read silently verses 7 to 12 and in a moment, we'll come back to that. You don't have to outline it or anything. so <laughs> no, that's good. <laughs> I think most of you had a chance to read it by now. I see a lot of people looking up. So in verses uh, 7 to 8, we, he begins here with an agriculture analogy to farming there and how the farmer has to wait for the, the fruit. Our crops are usually planted in the spring where we live in this part of the world and then harvested in the fall. In fact, many of them are harvested now. In the Mediterranean, it's the opposite. So these farmers would have been planting their crops at the end of October, early November. So this is the time that they put their crops in. And then they don't harvest them until the spring, usually April, May. So it's a real long period that they're waiting for any kind of crop to come out, and we read elsewhere in the scriptures about the early and latter rain, so the early rain is the rain that comes now that helps the seeds germinate, so they they pray and they hope for that rain, which usually comes about that time, and then there's the period of growth, and then usually there's a good rain right near harvest time that will cause the final growth of the fruit production so that they get a good crop from that, and Farmers were so dependent on that that it was was their livelihood. Uh, A week ago tomorrow, I went over to my dad's house. He likes to garden like I do. He's 86 years old, so I didn't want him digging up his sweet potatoes, so I volunteered to do that. And afterwards, I'm thinking, why did I volunteer to do this? It wasn't actually that hard, but we dug up about 50 pounds of potatoes. So I said, if you let me clean them and take them home, and then I I keep them by a heater for about two weeks, and that cures them and helps develop the sugar in them so they taste better. And then in in doing that, I get to keep half the sweet potatoes. So that's my my motive. But... um, i would be I would be really disappointed if my annual income was based on those fifty pounds of sweet potatoes. I love sweet potatoes, but uh, I can buy them pretty cheaply when they 're on sale uh, in the stores around Thanksgiving. but uh, these people this was their income, so they A farmer put his crop in, and he had to depend on that money in order for him to get through the whole next year. I don't know if any of you come from farm families, but you probably understand what that's like more than most of us. I think maybe the closest parallel I can think for for most of the people in this room might be saving up for retirement. So that's kind of a long way off, kind of like that crop that comes way down the line, and it takes patience And you're not wondering about when the rains are going to come. You're wondering about the stock market going up and down. So uh, I was kind of discouraged. About two weeks ago, I was looking at a, a fund, a 401K that I'd set up, and I was funding regularly a certain amount going in for four years and you know all these good predictions on how much money was going to be there. So after four years, I looked at it, and it's worth the exact same amount as if I would just taken that money and put it in a coffee can and buried it in my backyard. <laughs> so the predictions don't always come through. And thankfully, I'm not going to retire right away, but uh, I should, as a disclaimer, say that I'm not a financial uh, advisor, so... Take anything that I say and check with your own advisor or attorney before investing any funds. So don't put it in your backyard. You could probably do a little better. Uh, What James, though, I think his point here in these verses in 7 and 8, he's trying to say that the Lord's return is going to happen, just as sure as there there will be a time of harvest, and we have to trust in him for that harvest. It's not something we can force. The farmer can do a lot while the seed's in the ground. He can't make the seeds germinate. He can't stretch the stems when they're coming up. But there are things that he can do. He can cultivate it. He can fertilize. He can water if the rain doesn't come when it's supposed to. So he can provide the right nourishment and the things for the seeds to be able to grow. Uh, He shouldn't just sit back and and, and do no work at all. As Christians, we have the hope of the harvest of souls that's promised. But again, we can't hurry that. We can be faithful and we can do what God has called us to do, which I think was a perfect example that Brother Bob was saying. This started 60 years ago, and yet he's continued to maintain contact, and God has given opportunities, and we trust that God will open their hearts completely to the gospel, and they will recognize that Messiah. So there's a lot of kingdom work to be done. And we are commanded to look on the fields that are white unto harvest, but we're also needing to be patient during this time. Uh, The book of James doesn't have a lot of, some people say, not a whole lot of Christian doctrine in it. There's a lot of practical things in James, as we've seen, but there's not a lot of Christology. But his reference here to the coming of the Lord in verse 8 is a very clear one. And I think it's also uh, appropriate because this is a suffering people that he's writing to. Remember, these are the Jews that are dispersed. They're away from their homeland. They're refugees. They're away from their people. And they're away from the support that they might need. And so he talks about their hearts being established here. Uh, that In verse 8, establish your hearts. So that's what needs to support us, not our relatives and not our loved ones or other things. It's the, it's the Lord that will establish our hearts. Uh, literally, this means to make fast or to strengthen or prop up. So he didn't want them to collapse under the persecution, under the threats that were, were coming their way. We have a similar message that uh, Paul shares in Romans to, to that church. He said in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So he's, he's letting them know, yes, you are going to suffer, but this suffer, suffering is a light thing. And he said, in fact, in 2 Corinthians, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So... This uh, suffering is something that is inevitable. We probably don't face it in the way that James readers are facing it. And yet it is, it is going to take place. And we're going to feel it maybe in a different way in our culture today. Let's look at verse 9 now. Uh, he kind of changes uh, direction. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So sometimes when we're in pain or when we're under attack by others, we lash out. And we might actually lash out at the wrong people. We lash out at the people who are supporting us, the people who are loving us because we are antagonized in some way. So it's sort of like misplaced. I think about uh, maybe you have a dog, and this dog is very loving normally, and you do a lot for it, and you treat it like a child. I know my my father has a dog that's like that. It's like he talks to it all the time and loves on it and everything. But if that dog is injured in some way, and you go to try to help it, it might snap at you and bite because it doesn't understand that you're trying to to help it. And so even... uh, an animal that is normally very easy to get along with might retaliate. And I think sometimes people who are under persecution, even Christians that are feeling persecuted, are going to react incorrectly to other believers, people who they should be going to for support and that they should be loving. And so that, that's one of the threats I think that Paul is warning them about here. The the idea of grumbling in this verse, the Greek word also could be translated complain, that we shouldn't be complaining. And he may have thrown this in here because some of these believers that were being persecuted were complaining about what was happening to them. Why is? What was me? Why is God letting this happen to me? Or maybe they're complaining about other people. Why does she have such a good life or why is he doing well and I'm not? I know none of you probably ever compare yourself with others when it comes to birds. I never, I never would do that, right? But I think that's a part of human nature. Uh, we, we compare how well we're doing or how badly we're doing, and James doesn't want his readers to fall into that trap. And it's easy to do when you're on the, the, the bottom end, when you're on the receiving end of a lot of the, the difficult times here. It may have even been true in in this situation that some of their Christian brothers and sisters had been unfair to them. So that that's why they were responding incorrectly and grumbling and complaining to one another because other Christians were mistreating them. Christians are fallen. Uh, We're all sinners, and so we could respond incorrectly to somebody else, but James may be saying that you're not to judge that, and that's why he reminds them that who the judge is. The judge is standing at the door. Uh, He's right on the other side of the door. Another reminder of the second coming, the Lord's return, is kind of veiled in this language here. So, if we keep in mind the fact that God is the one who 's going to take care he 's going to make things right and he 's going to see if we 're suffering we might not have relief from that suffering in this life, but ultimately we 're going to be glorified now sometimes even the the greatest of god 's uh, people leaders fall into the trap of responding wrongly to being mistreated, and I think probably the the key one that comes to mind is Paul when he is in Acts 23 before the high priest. And you might remember the high priest orders Paul to be struck. And I'm assuming he's you know slapped in the face or something to humiliate them and cause pain at the same time. And Paul lashes out and he says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And then he went on and said, are you sitting to judge me according to the law? Well, Paul immediately was informed that the person that ordered him to be struck was the high priest. And had the right to do that, even though Paul didn't like that situation. So Paul quickly repented and... Apologized and said, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were the high priest, and I'm not supposed to speak out against you. So he didn't justify what the high priest ordered done. But Paul, I think, was guilty of what we often do when we are attacked, that we immediately respond. And so he had to uh, ask for forgiveness in that particular situation. So blaming others when we have problems or lashing out at others is always easier, I think, than reflecting on our own situation and asking ourselves the question is is this difficulty something that i brought on myself is it my fault that i'm in this situation or is it just a lesson that god's trying to teach me that i haven't learned yet and that that could be the reason for that as well moving on now to uh, verses 10 and 11 let me just read those before we look at them. It says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So here we kind of have uh, some echoes that you might recognize phrases from the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when when Christ was preaching and he talked about, blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And that's what uh, James is referring to here. Uh, this particular book, though, James, was probably written 5 to 15 years before any of the Gospels were written. So some people would say, okay, how how does he know the Sermon on the Mount? And he doesn't have Matthew or the Mark version or the Luke version of the Sermon on the Mount. But we know that before the the Gospels were written up and distributed, there were the oral records of Christ's sermon. So he preached that sermon. and, And what he preached in the Sermon on the Mount was probably things that he preached many different places as he traveled throughout Palestine. So the the apostles remembered those things. They passed those on orally, and most likely James, who was the brother of Christ, he might not have been at the Sermon on the Mount, but he would have been familiar with that. So the Holy Spirit included that by his inspiration here as well as in the Gospels. So there were a lot of different prophets who were persecuted and other spiritual leaders down through the the time of the Old Testament, even up into the, the time of James' writings, people who were being martyred. Who were some, I'll just open up the floor here to you, who were some of those who were mistreated? They might not have been killed, although some were, but who were some of the great men or women of the Old Testament who went through difficult times? Zechariah. Zechariah, right. And in particular, um, King Joash was the one that attacked him and made his life pretty miserable. Jeremiah. Jeremiah, Right. King Zedekiah. I only knew that because I looked him up. I couldn't remember which king. And he was also thrown into that muddy pit. That cistern. Others? Okay. The, the three Hebrew children. Thrown into a fiery furnace. And around that same time, somebody else spent some time with lions? Daniel? Daniel? Good. Others? Isaiah, let's see, what did he go through? Hmm. He was rejected, we know that. His message was rejected. I don't know if there was a particular king that did bad things to him, but... Moses had to put up with a little bit, didn't he? (laughs) Elijah. Elijah, Ahab and Jezebel were out for him. Joseph, his own family... And Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, a few other people. Who's the guy that owns the vineyard that they have one after? yeah. So I actually have a much longer list. I won't make you get all of them, and I won't read them. But the the point is, uh, most of the people who tried to remain faithful to God, including Hosea, Amos. Um, David John the Baptist Stephen uh, they did not have a, an easy time so they were they were persecuted usually by outsiders not by other Christians but sometimes like Moses it was his own people who were rejecting him and causing a lot of grief for him so those who are going to be faithful are going to have to be patient through suffering and that's what when James said this remember he's writing to Jewish Believers that are scattered. So they know these stories. They should know them at least. Uh, Hebrews 11 over there. We won't take time to read it. But in verses 32 to 38. It recognizes some of these same people. We've just mentioned here. Who were martyred for their faith. Uh, So he says in verse 11. We consider blessed those who remain steadfast. So every one who lives on this earth, whether they're a Christian or whether they're a non-Christian, they're going to have difficult times. Our lives are full of difficulty because of the fall, because of sin, because of the consequences of that. But a Christian, I think, faces the additional potential persecution of being mistreated because of their faith, because they are loving God, and that's going to draw... The attacks on them. So that makes it even, I think, harder. And it's harder sometimes as Christians because we think, well, I'm trying to be faithful to the Lord. Why is this happening to me? Well, that's probably why it is happening to you because that's an affront to the world. And James readers are living in very different cultures, not a culture that would accept their Jewish way of thinking. So they're going to be attacked for that reason. In verse 11, he raises Job as the prime example of suffering uh, none of us would really want to trade places with Job, I'm sure. And he talks about his steadfastness and his commitment. James begins his letter way back in the first chapter, the third verse of the first chapter, talking about the trials. Uh, count it all, what, is it, what does it say? <laughs> count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing your faith produces steadfastness. There's that word. So now we're in the fifth chapter. He's coming to the end of the book, and he's bringing it right back around to where he started. So uh, James might have used Job as the example here because of the fact that we, we know the ending. Uh, we, when we read Job's story... Unless it's the first time you read the Bible, you know how it's going to turn out. That God's going to restore His fortunes; everything's going to be given back double to Him. But uh, when Job was going through it, he didn't know how the story was going to end. So we can, I think, we can understand why Job got a little confused and why Job questioned God. So Job was steadfast; he never rejected God. But that doesn't mean he never questioned God, because he was a man like like we are, and he had those kind of those passions and limitations. Uh, James says that God at the end of verse eleven, is f- literally full of compassion, and the Greek word is many bowed and you remember that it, to the under the ancient mind the bowels were the seat of compassion or emotion, so God is many bowed this is a word that 's used no other place in the New Testament. Some people think that that James just made up the word that he wanted to make that point, so he coined his own word to stick in here because we don 't see it used anywhere else. That God has a a limitless compassion for his own. And that is a great comfort when we do go through afflictions. That yes, we can go through difficulties. Uh, None of us have ever gone through what Job had to go through, thankfully, and probably never will. And yet we have a God who is just as faithful to us as he was to Job. Now looking at the last verse here, uh, verse 12 Let me just read that. It doesn't seem to quite fit the passage we've been in, and it might just be a transition to the, the final verses. But he says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. One possible reason that I found that this could be here is that sometimes when people are suffering or they're under some kind of pressure, they make rash decisions or rash vows. And we have all heard of foxhole conversions. People in the middle of battle say, God, if you get me out of here, I'll I'll serve you. I'll be a pastor or I'll do something spiritual. I'll go on a pilgrimage or something like that. Uh, It could be that. Uh, We know in the Old Testament, Jephthah made a rash vow, which cost him dearly. But um, it it could be that, or it could just be the fact that um, Jewish culture was full of oath-taking. So it was a very common thing at that time for Jewish people to take oaths to show how committed they were to something or to show how honest and above-board they were. Uh, This came about in a time where there were no written contracts So instead of a written contract, you would take an oath over something that was very valuable to you, your mother's grave, or that's what people would say today, something like that. Or we do have people swear when they are sworn in to testify in court today. That's still part of our, I guess it's still part of our legal system. At least it happens on TV. I haven't been in a courtroom in a while. I think they they still do that. Uh, Many of you sitting in this room, a a majority of you I know have taken public oaths before, right? Some of you with this man right here standing by you, right? So when you get married, you are publicly taking an oath to that person you are committing to, and they are reciprocating, hopefully, or the marriage never is completed. So uh, we... We also, in our culture today, early in American culture, we would maybe seal an oath, a verbal commitment, with a handshake, and they say a person that means is good. You know, his word is good; you can trust his handshake. We don't shake hands uh, at weddings after we take oaths. I, at least I've never seen that in a wedding. Probably that wouldn't that wouldn't be a real strong commitment if you shook your spouse's hand after they were introduced. But uh, taking an oath in Jewish culture was part of their way of communicating with each other and we see examples of it in the Old Testament and God even made oaths to his people those pledges those commitments that he had toward them but these oaths were often misused and that's why we have the commandment about not taking the name of the Lord in vain sometimes people would take an oath on God's name knowing that they weren't going to keep that oath or they had an intention to but then they decided it was inconvenient they would break that oath And I think James is getting this point across to his mostly Jewish readers that we have to be very careful about oaths, and we shouldn't have to rely on an oath to get somebody to believe that we're going to keep our word. We should have such a commitment to honesty, our reputation, that if we say we're going to do something, we'll do it. Or if we say this is true, then they can believe that we're speaking the truth and not trying to pull the wool over their eyes in some way. So a person who is untrustworthy or has an, uh, a reputation for exaggerating or stretching the truth and is forced to get, take an oath or to promise or to sign some kind of a statement to get somebody to agree them, with them, uh, is, that's a bad thing. A Christian should never be in a position like that. As, as you look at this, though, you'll notice that it says at the very end of our verse 12, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And that, that statement is a little maybe misunderstood. So when we think condemnation, does that mean that you're going to be sent to hell for taking an oath? Or does that mean you're going to be judged in some way? So some people think that this idea of being put into condemnation means you're going to be judged for not being a truthful Christian. But the word condemnation here is only ever used of damnation, of somebody being sentenced to hell for their sin that has rejected Christ. So I think really what we can take away from this, James is saying if a person is that untrustworthy that their word is not good, that you can't trust them, that they're having to constantly take oaths to get people to believe them, that person doesn't have the truth in them that that person is not a believer, and that should be a person you need to mark and stay away from. So this, that verse is probably, of the verses tonight, is maybe one of the ones that's hardest to decipher what it might mean to us today. But I would say the, the key takeaway lesson here is that Christians should have a reputation of honesty, and that if we are Christians, we should be committed to the truth, not just the truth of the gospel, but truth in all areas of our lives. So as we as we wrap up here in conclusion, we're we're quite a far removed from Jewish people dispersed over two thousand years ago in that culture. So what what does it mean to us today in our middle middle class American twenty for early twenty first century? I think the the key lesson here from that the first part I've already talked about the oath taking there. But all of us are going to face difficulties of one or another in this life. Some are going to be physical, some might be financial, emotional, other people are threatening us. Uh, We can either allow those trials and those difficulties to draw us away from God and away from his people. Or to lose hope in God's promises and completely turn our back in the hope of Christ's return. Uh, And not being patient and waiting for him to come make things right, to set everything right again. It can also turn us away from doing the work that we're called to do. Just like a farmer who forsakes his commitment to the crop and says, you know, I I don't have anything more to do for now. Farmers have to keep working. They have work to do. They have uh, jobs that they can do to get ready for the harvest that's coming. So the fields are white and harvest, and we can't afford to forsake that job. We need to be patient, even though it might not be an easy time to be patient to wait because of the times of suffering and the persecution that are coming on. So I hope uh, this has been an encouragement to you. Uh, in some ways, it's kind of a downer, a negative passage to think about suffering and having to be patient and being truthful all the time and having your reputation on the line. But James was inspired to write this for a reason, and it was preserved for us for a reason. So I know that all scripture is given and is is profitable for us in some way. So maybe you're facing some trials this week or this year and that God is calling you to be patient in. Maybe there's something you've been praying for that hasn't happened yet, and you're wondering, is it going to happen? Uh, Maybe there's... Issues in your life that you're dealing with that you just can't understand why they're happening, Uh, we can be patient and know that God is the one that's in control of those situations. He His timetable is different than ours, and there there there's some things that we can control. Just like the farmer can do some things, there are many things that are out of our hands that we just have to trust God and know that He He is the one who is faithful. Just as sure as His coming is going to happen, He's faithful to, to keep His promises to us.